0: analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford
1: on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to have you along on the show. It is a beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. Some clouds, blue sky, but it looks like it's going to be a sunny, hot day. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about on the show. We're going to talk to BC's Energy and Mines Minister in just a little while. We'll also talk uh, heart health uh, at the bottom of the hour. And we'll finish off, as we always do on Tuesday, talking American and Canadian politics with TRU's Jeffrey Myers. But first, we're a pleasure to welcome in the studio this morning the chair of the Campbell Thompson School Board, uh, Kathleen Karpak. How are you, Kathleen?
2: I'm good. Thank you for having me. I almost
1: said school district, and I self-corrected on board. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> grad season, you're busy. How's it going? It
2: is. It's been very busy. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we're about halfway through grad season right now, so we've got another entire week or two. I think our last grad is the 22nd of June.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh, I know you're busy running around to all the different grad things, but how has that changed over the years? I know because when I went, there wasn't the, the dry thing, which has now come into effect. And and then, of course, the overall ceremonies and all that kind of jazz. Has that changed quite a bit in your time or no?
2: Um, so the one thing that we have is we now have most of our big in-town um, high schools are having their grads at uh, MacArthur Island in the arena there. Yeah, It's large enough that we can get everybody and their families in, and uh, <laughs> we don't have to take the stage down every night, so yeah.
1: that's good. Excellent. Uh, lots to talk mm-hmm. about. So, um, you guys are uh, got a couple more school board meetings left, and then uh, you're done for the summer, and then we pick up at a new school year with uh, some pretty significant things hanging in the air. One of them, of course, is the Valley View project, uh, which, uh, you know, you've got an architect on, and I understand, hopefully, here, fingers crossed, shovels go in the ground this fall. Um, what are you guys doing as far as planning for when a new wave of students shows up at Valley View in September, uh, and then potentially you have this construction zone that starts? How's that sort of planning looking like right
2: now? So we will have some disruption. Yeah. Um, that's just going to. That's just understood that uh, when you're having construction and students, there's disruption. <clears throat> We're going to try and keep that to a minimum. So part of the planning process is to um, have things so that we're not interrupting students, putting portables where they're not going to be in the way, um, that type of thing. But there is going to definitely be some disruption. There's going to be some noise, but that's part of the price to pay when you have mm. a construction project to get mm. a new school addition.
1: So how invasive will the like do you lose classrooms as they kind of tear stuff out? Uh, I mean, are you going to have to bring in portables kind of ad hoc and be like, okay, we need to move a classroom here. Let's put that there. Is it, will it be that invasive at points or no? No, it shouldn't be. Okay. All right. So what are you looking at then as far as just losing space? Should I imagine there'll be some some sports field sort of stuff side.
2: Yeah. So we'll be having some construction on sports fields. We'll be having construction that'll be disrupting parking lots. So parking will probably be a bit of a challenge. Um, That's actually one of the things that they're probably going to be working on first is uh, working on the parking lots and getting those uh, rerouted and uh, we may have to move some portables.
1: Interesting. Uh, The other big thing uh, is bargaining and I know you're not at the table obviously but uh, I talked to Glenn Hansman last night uh, and as I'm sure you know there's there's a big roadblock now on class size and composition. Uh, both sides are stuck. Um, there was the hope for to get a deal by the end of June. Uh, Hansman told me from the BCTF perspective that there's a near 0% chance and the unions now ask for bargaining dates and it's likely, in his words, this will push into the fall. Uh, as you know, every round of bargaining to date in the province over the last decade or two has gone to a strike or a lockout or some kind of labour strife. Now, hopefully that doesn't happen and we get a deal. but. Uh, As you watch this sort of develop, are you kind of keeping in mind from a school district perspective about having some plans in place in case there's, you know, some kind of labor strife, or no?
2: We always have plans in place for when things go a little bit sideways. Hopefully bargaining won't. Um, So that's the biggest thing, is that we're hoping that the two sides will stay together, and having bargaining dates into October is actually very hopeful news. Um, So. We're going to keep our fingers crossed that things go smoothly this fall and that we don't have any any impact on students.
1: Do you guys get updates from BCPC, sort of touching on what's going on to give you a sense, or do you just kind of watch it through the media?
2: We do get updates from BCPC, yeah.
1: Okay. What's your your gut sort of telling you? You've seen a few of these things.
2: Negotiating is always um, challenging. Yeah. So, and it'll continue to be challenging. So it's just working through the process and hopefully both sides come to an agreement.
1: All right. Uh, as I mentioned, a couple more school board meetings. Uh, one of the tasks you guys have, I understand June is, uh, you were telling me off the air, uh, you guys have to do a little something on the capital side. You've got the Valley View project done. That was well earned. You're happy about that but that is not the silver bullet for what ails this district. So um, what does that look like right now? I understand you haven't got the new priority list, one through five, but uh, what do you have to do in June, and and where's the district at as far as determining what's next there?
2: So we have to submit our um, capital funding request every June, and that's where we prioritize where we need school expansions, new schools, um, purchase of property, renovations, upgrades, that type of thing, uh, new school buses, yeah. and we send that into the ministry. Based on the presentation that we got from the City of Kamloops and the official community plan, looking out into 2030 and looking at where the areas of growth that the city has been projecting. Hmm. We know that Pineview Valley is again going to be very high priority. We're seeing that the city's planning a lot of growth for that Aberdeen area. They're talking 30% growth for that area. They're talking growth in Valley View, growth in Juniper. So those are definitely going to be pressure points. And so we want to make sure that when we put in our capital funding request, that we get it right so that we're more likely to get a new school or an expansion where we need it.
1: So then does, and again, I know you I know you guys are working on a new priority list uh, and that hasn't been settled yet, but then can you make a case based on, on the data and what you've said in the past about the Aberdeen that Pine View Valley is probably a pretty good shot at being the new number one ask or no?
2: Pine View Valley will definitely be very high up on our list, yeah. And so we have the ability now to say that we have a number one priority for a new school. Yeah. We have a number one priority for an expansion. Yeah. We have a number one priority for uh, renovations. And so we're able to split things out a little bit more finely now rather than just saying that we have one number one. Yeah. So we're actually able to say that we have number ones in several several different categories.
1: That's a new thing too, by the way. Before it was just straight... You know, in Valley View's case, that was the number one ask. That was it. End of game. But this is now more categorized. Does that give you hope that, um, you know, as opposed to before, here's your one number one ask. Now is there a chance to move on multiple stuff of scale? Like, okay, we could potentially get a new school, but also an expansion here or or some new buses or whatever.
2: Yeah. So that's, that's what we're hoping is that by going to this new format that we actually have the ability to advance several different business cases all at the same time.
1: Uh, Just to refresh my memory, when will you guys settle all the priorities for sure in order to say, okay, this is what we're
2: doing. Here's our number one, number two, number three, and all these categories. I believe that we are going to be talking about that on the 17th.
1: Okay, perfect. Uh, Sun Peaks, uh, you're telling me off there, you guys are moving some portables there. I know that there's sort of a short-term solution and a long-term solution. So short-term, what's happening up there right now?
2: Short-term, we're adding some portables. So, we just have the numbers up there that we need to have at least one more portable.
3: Yeah. And
2: so, we will be adding that this summer. I don't know that I don't have the information about the location yet. Yeah. But we will be putting at least yeah. one new but portable it, it, up there.
1: It can't go on the existing site, though, right? I mean, the, the existing site is too small. So, you got to do something there, correct?
2: There's some challenges with the existing site, yeah.
1: Okay. So, what's the process in determining a new site?
2: So, we leave that to our. Um, our director of facilities he's the one that needs to make that decision he's best suited to be able to weigh the pros and cons as to the physical site and what the actual parameters are so that will be in his hands
1: <laughs> and can as far as a long-term solution i mean ideally you and i were talking last time about uh, potentially having a, a brick and mortar something there maybe it's multi-use whatever it looks like how's how's that process going
2: so we're in the um Starting phases of that, we're striking a committee that uh, we're going to be working, hopefully, have a a representative from TNRD, representatives from Sun Peaks, as well as the school district, to say, what does this potential new school look like for Sun Peaks? What are the things that we can uh, work together on? And does that mean that TNRD wants to put a library up there, is it going to be attached to the school so that we can have an expanded library or will it be a separate building? Will it be connected to um, sports facilities? Will the school be located close to sports facilities? Will we share sports facilities? And that's something that we would work on with the municipality. And so really what it's about is trying to find a way to make sure that our resources as a group are all used so that they enhance each other.
1: How much time do you have there? I'm, I'm not obviously privy to some of the, the data that's floating around Sun Peaks. My understanding is the population up there is exploding. I'm not sure how much of that is families and children. But if you throw another portable up there, how much time have you guys estimated that buys you to, towards the longer term solution?
2: Population is always a little bit tricky to predict, um, but at the rate that Sun Peaks is growing, we will be adding more portables over time, and hopefully Mm. that means that uh, we get all of our ducks in a row so that we can say, look, we really need a school up here and be able to put together a good business case so that the provincial government looks at it and agrees with us and says, yeah, you need a school.
1: Excellent. Kathleen, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's Kathleen Carbuck, Chair of the Kamloops Thompson School Board, to take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, BC's Energy and Mines Minister joins us.
0: Radio NL, RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 6:10 a.m. and RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone right now by BC's Energy and Mines Minister Michelle Mungall. Pretty big announcement in the Kootenays today: uh, $290,000 to uh, help a, a local. Company develop battery anodes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. uh, All towards uh, helping make electric vehicle batteries. uh, Something that's being sort of uh, moved towards as a province. Uh, Give me give me some insight into how big a deal this is exactly.
4: So this funding comes from our Clean BC Plan's ARC Fund, which is advanced research and commercialization, and what it is is to help. Uh, industries and green tech operators all around BC either advance the research or commercialize some of their tech that will actually advance electric vehicles and zero-emission vehicles in the province and around the world. This technology is moving fast and BC needs to be a part of it and we have a fund to help businesses be a part of it.
1: What exactly is the demand for for electrical vehicle batteries? I mean, I know uh, the sale of electric, electric vehicles has sort of exploded recently, but is there a significant demand as far as, uh, you know, kind of doing these anodes that, that needs to be filled or no? Well,
4: this is the thing. is The technology is continuously advancing, and it's advancing at a pretty rapid pace. As we, as consumers, we're demanding greater range with the zero emission vehicles. We're wanting to make the shift to zero emission vehicles. We want to be able to uh, go on a long road trip in a zero emission vehicle. And so, advancing the technology to meet that consumer demand is happening at a very rapid pace. And we want to help BC businesses be a part of that. And so, what we have here in the Kootenays today is. just under $300,000 going to Eagle Graphite, who is going to be looking to advance the technology associated with the battery of uh, electric vehicles. And of course, if you see an electric vehicle on the road, you see a battery on the road as well. And so if we can advance that technology and if we can do it here in BC and have a global impact, that is a good thing.
1: Does that mean that uh, Eagle Graphite will add some more jobs or will this just be on the tech side?
4: So where they are at, it's about helping them commercialize their technology so that they can build their business and create more jobs. So that their business could be uh, successful and increasing the demand of their technology. Well, then that brings jobs back home to our communities.
1: Now I understand that as far as electric vehicle sales go. Uh, I know there's sort of mandated targets set out in legislation, uh, but it sounds like that's so explosive. We're actually looking to be ahead of the curve there. Is that right?
4: It's very possible. Our mandate that we legislated is that all new light duty vehicles by 2040 will be zero emission vehicles that are sold here in British Columbia. But the demand is actually happening at a much higher and faster pace than anybody even thought of possible. So we'll see where consumer demand goes in the future, but we know that BC wants these types of vehicles, and so we have to make sure we have the supply.
1: How will the 2040 deadline work for, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense in your Metro Vancouver's, Southern Vancouver Islands, places like that, but there's a lot of rural communities in this province that uh, use, uh, you know, a lot of gas guzzling, be it vehicles, tractors, that kind of thing. How does that target sort of work around some of those needs?
4: Well, again, this is light duty vehicles. So uh, tractors wouldn't be covered under this uh, zero-emission vehicle legislation. But, uh, of course, what's important to note is that the technology is always changing, and that's exactly what this fund is about. And we're going to see F-150s as electric vehicles in our lifetime. We're going to see major transport trucks as zero-emission vehicles in our lifetime. So this is all happening. As I said, the technology is advancing uh, very rapidly, and we want British Columbia to be a part of that, and we're making that happen.
1: What are you hearing from BC Hydro, Michelle, as far as um, the not only sort of the load impact of, of a massive explosion in electric vehicles, uh, but also in, in creating infrastructure to charge these things, be it you know, potentially in, in homes now, but, uh, but also on major highways across the province?
4: So we actually have a fund that will help people set up uh, charging infrastructure in their homes, whether it's a single detached dwelling or a multi-unit dwelling. Uh, But BC Hydro has already been rolling out charging stations around the province. They're continuing to do so, and they're continuing to plan for well into the future in terms of what the need is going to be to meet electrical demand for the future and how we're going to do it.
1: With uh, some high gas prices, they've fallen a bit now and I know BCUC has been tasked by your government to look into that. Do you anticipate that, that those prices are in fact driving people more to electric vehicles by themselves or no?
2: I
4: think it would be uh, it would be naive to say that that's not the case. Absolutely. Uh, gas prices are one of the incentives that people always or one of the reasons people always cite as uh, why they are interested in zero emission vehicles. But a lot of people are looking to make the switch regardless of gas price because there's a lot of other benefits uh, for zero-emission vehicles. People personally want to reduce their carbon emissions. That's, uh, that's often what people are telling me and what uh, we hear when we uh, do surveys on why people are making the switch to zero-emission vehicles. Uh, so there's also personal interest. But there's also, um, that when people test drive these vehicles, they're really enjoying the drive so they're peppy they're zippy they're they're great to drive they're lower maintenance uh, so there there's a lot of reasons that uh, are are, the, are um, there's a lot of reasons why people are making the switch
1: you're your're nelson's in your home riding and i believe close to where you live as well but uh... Nelson like Kamloops is an interesting position where perhaps people in the city would adopt electric vehicles for sure i um, probably are uh... but you're also interconnected by miles and miles and kilometers and kilometers worth of highways to get anywhere else outside both Kamloops and Nelson to get to the lower mainland or Kelowna or, or what have you how important is it do you think to set up an infrastructure to support this demand and and are we on pace to to stay ahead of the demand
4: uh, very important to have infrastructure in our rural areas as well as our urban areas for zero emission vehicles. And right now you can actually drive from the Alberta border all the way to Tofino without losing a charge because there's enough charging stations along the way. And we see in rural communities like Nelson, like Creston, like Caslow and so on that are having increased infrastructure for zero emission vehicles, uh, charging stations are. Uh, in, in all of the communities I just mentioned. So char- the infrastructure for 0 emission vehicles is rolling out in rural and urban areas. But still, uh, I have to uh, go uh, way out into the back country to meet some of my constituents sometimes. And so what kind of vehicle would work for me if I wanted to go to a 0 emission vehicle? Plug-in hybrid.
1: Uh, While I got you on the phone. We're about eight days away from the Trudeau government uh, delivering a yes, no, maybe so, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I know uh, your government is in court on that matter, but uh, if it's a yes, Michelle, uh, will construction proceed, and will the province be on side with that?
4: So, we're talking, Shane, you and I today, that was very, very sly of you, because you and I are talking about uh, funding for Eagle Craft, right? And and, uh, the... uh, our our Clean B.C. plan and and not talking about TMX. But uh, we'll see what uh, the Liberal government chooses to do and how they choose to move forward. We've been very clear all along that we are going to do what we need to do to protect our coast and to make sure that British Columbians' interests are at the
1: table. Does that include those kind of saying no-go on uh, construction on Crown land until things resolve themselves in court, Michelle, or no?
4: I can't comment on any of that. Uh, your questions are best directed to the Minister of Environment. That
1: would be within his portfolio. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Michelle, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Shane. Take care. That was BC's Energy and Mines Minister, Michelle Mungal. We'll take a quick break on The Woodford Show. A lot more coming your way right after this.
0: Local news now. Radio NL. 610 a.m. And Radio NL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. real pleasure. Welcome to the program from Simon Fraser University, Professor of Faculty of Health Sciences, Pfizer and Heart Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention, uh, Scott Lear. How are you, Scott?
3: I'm doing well, Shane. Are you?
1: I am well. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking a few minutes. Really appreciate it. Um, the reason we have you on is you guys, uh, you're part of a global study looking at uh, socioeconomic factors and their relation to uh, cardiovascular diseases and the health outcomes thereof. Uh, it looks like you guys made some interesting findings. Maybe sum it up for me. Uh, what did What did you learn after taking a look at all of these cases?
3: Yes, certainly. Most definitely. Uh, When we're looking at socioeconomic status, we're looking at a few things, but education and income or wealth are two of the, the main keys for socioeconomic status. And traditionally, we would believe that income, how much money we have, is a much better predictor than education in our health. And that tends to be the case when we're looking at what we call high-income countries like, like Canada. Um, but when we're looking across countries, as we did in this study, it's hard to assess wealth in India versus wealth in Canada. But education seems to be something that's a global measure. You know, we we um, educate people in a similar way. There's primary school, secondary school, college, universities, and actually, education was a stronger predictor. So, the higher education a person had, the less chance of getting heart disease. Conversely, people who had less than high school education had a higher chance of getting heart disease and early death.
1: That's kind of interesting. And the knee-jerk reaction, I think, for most people would be it would be a lack of money in order to access uh, health care services, uh, especially in countries that don't have the benefit of sort of public, uh, public health care. Uh, but why education? Why the link there and, and not the monetary link?
3: Well, I think some of it has has to do with the fact, like, as you said, Access to health care. And yeah, in some countries, if you have more money, your access might be greater. But it's, um, it's more of a case if we look at it the, the other way, that we probably can't make a difference in people's health if we start giving them money. Um, that might not be an answer whereas if we start educating people there's a bit of there's knowledge uh, of how to actually access that health care where to go um, what are the things that are good for preventing getting heart disease so that falls under education uh, as opposed to kind of wealth or how much income somebody has
1: so then it raises the question of how to educate I mean are we talking uh, getting people through high school? Are we talking educating them on the specifics of the healthcare system? Getting them into uh, post secondary? Like, how do you define a level of education that would improve their ability to access and understand healthcare?
3: Yeah, ec- excellent question. Um, that, the precise answer probably still needs some more work. However, I'd I suggest that with, with this and some other research, it actually can tell us that education may be what we'd call a modifiable risk factor. So we know that as we age, we have a higher chance of getting heart disease and Likely to get cancer and other conditions. Age isn't modifiable. Unfortunately, yet yeah, we can't change that. Whereas education, because we can change it, is modifiable just like lowering somebody's blood pressure. So, as you point out, um, I would say like a first uh, kind of public health target would be to add in more supports so people could finish high school. I think high school is kind of the minimum level that uh, we'd like to see everybody now in BC we're doing we're doing pretty good Uh, the average across Canada of people without a high school degree is about eight and a half percent and in BC it's about six and a half percent but it also tends to cluster in those societies that are more vulnerable or marginalized that also have poor health outcomes so it can be kind of one in the same could it be education? Is why these um, uh, people have um, are more vulnerable, um, living under in subpar conditions, or is it a bit of vice vice versa? So, trying to figure out—it's easy to say—but trying to figure out how we can uh, ensure that people at least finish their high school degree. Hmm. So,
1: uh, I guess next obvious question is how do we go about doing that? You've identified a link uh... we've gained a little bit of knowledge there you've identified uh... certain populations and and as you just mentioned that 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 seem to be a little higher uh, on the lack of education side so now that you've sort of empowered yourself with this information how do you turn it into action how, how does that step look like
3: yeah, so um, it's always that challenge, uh, translating the, the research in, into action, but it doesn't mean it can't uh, be done, and the first thing is, like, bringing that awareness, and I think it will actually maybe take some time for um, public health to recognize education as kind of a modifiable factor related to health. There's so many also other benefits of, of education as as well, and so there might be some... I don't know if resistance would be the word, but challenge in, you know, including that under the umbrella of of public health. But collectively, um, I think society will agree that, yes, we should push for ensuring greater education in our population. How How we do that would probably take more understanding and the reasons of why some people are not getting a high school education. Could it be because they're supporting a, uh, a, f- a family um, and so they have to go and get a job because maybe the their parents aren't around or their parents are too sick or unable to, to work? Or maybe it's um, some other situation where they've lost their housing and they're no longer uh, eligible or able to, to go to school. so. Um, it's probably not just a case of people have just kind of woken up and decided I'm, I'm going to stop high school. It's a bit more complex than that. And so that will probably require a, a more kind of nuanced um, way to approach it as well
1: how do you bring education into sort of the public health umbrella or or get a better relationship i mean as we all know we have health authorities in this province here in Kamloops it's the interior health authority and then we have the various school districts etc uh, how do you create a relationship there and overlap in order to accomplish those goals
3: well, there are already some touch points that we might be able to build on. For for example, when there's um, in-school vaccinations, that's a coordination between school boards and health authorities. Um, there's some connection when it comes to se- sexual education and health education already. And and just building on those links. And And that's why I, I've started using this language that education is a modifiable risk factor because hopefully it kind of perks people's... Years up and think of, oh, okay, I never thought of education as something that I could change, like my blood pressure, to improve my health. But by having that conversation with public health and saying, okay, well, this is something that we can we can actually act on, and um, in, in some ways it may be um, more approachable than kind of trying to lower a population's blood pressure, because as I said, education, getting education is far more, is, is very socially acceptable as, as well from society. So I, I would try, look to strengthen those uh, touch points that already uh, exist, and having... Um, maybe perhaps like I know in my daughter's high school, there are police liaisons, maybe having health authority liaisons who work closely with the school counselors to identify those students who may be at risk of dropping out of high school and working with the school counselors in, in a way that can helpfully, hopefully support the, the students to stay in school as well.
1: Scott, uh, thank you so much for taking some time this morning and uh, touching on uh, what's, uh, what's some pretty significant findings of an overall fascinating study.
3: All right. Thank you very much, Shane
1: appreciate it. that's Scott Lear. he's professor of uh, Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University took part in a global study studying links between uh, cardiovascular health and health outcomes and education and wealth found an interesting link between education and poorer health outcomes. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on the other side we'll, we'll touch on American politics and Jeffrey Myers
0: Radio NL radionl.com local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 a.m. and
1: RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. After a couple of week absence due to myself being on vacation, it's a delight to reconnect with TRU's Jeffrey Myers, a lecturer up there, also a lawyer and an expert on constitutional law. Jeffrey, how are you?
5: Oh, I'm well. I, you know, we were talking um, off air, and we, and we're saying we're both on recently on vacation, yeah. taking some time off and doing other things. So, I don't know. Perhaps our listeners will be calling in today
1: and, and correcting us
5: because I feel like uh, reporting on news from two weeks ago to relax.
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe we should something. maybe we should talk about sunshine and the exact uh, <laughs> the exact ingredients in a daiquiri that makes it for the best or something. But exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, there's some things uh, going on this week uh, that are sort of pertinent uh, to our neighbors to the south and a lot of what you and I have talked about. Uh, over the last few months here. And uh, one of them is a big one. We talked about the, the potential showdown with the Justice Department and the White House over uh, access to documents from the Mueller report. So uh, new as of this week is uh, Jerry Nadler, the House Judiciary Chairman, says they've, they've reached a deal, some kind of a deal with the Justice Department to get those documents in front of Congress. Is, is that a fairly significant movement in, in, from your perspective or no?
5: I mean the um, you know I, I I don't the answer to that is it's significant in so far as it's a sort of I, I suppose it's it's yet another move in the direction of sort of um, trying to um, the, the, I guess what I'm trying to say here is it's not that significant of a move in the kind of bigger in, in the in the bigger picture but it, it, in, I suppose in a small sense it just demonstrates to you where things are at right now so in that sense it's. Um, kind of representative. I mean, remember that where things are at right now is that uh, uh, Bob Mueller himself spoke, made statements basically adding nothing to what was already inside the report uh, and emphasizing some of those key turns in there. Um, namely, and this is the one that was glommed on by those who advocate um, uh, for impeachment, uh, that if, if the um, committee could have exonerated they would have. Right. And of course, now John Dean, as you say, is before the a committee in Congress and, and is um, um, is 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 giving his testimony around um, whether this is uh, a roadmap for impeachment or not. right? Yeah. And that's the big question.
1: Yeah. And, for and, for and for those who don't know, Jeff, underline, yeah. John, who is John Dean? I mean, you and I know, but maybe for our listeners, I mean, why is he a figure? Why is he important in this debate?
5: Well, I mean, he was important in this debate insofar as he was instrumental in uh, Watergate, right? In that he was himself uh, charged with um, obstruction of justice, he was White House counsel. And um, and did jail time. So, I mean, he's had a long and rich career where he has kind of um, uh, demonstrated himself as a as a thoughtful person and, and sort of redeemed himself in other ways. And so he's a leading kind of expert on the law of impeachment now. And there he is before the committee. But he's also a cable news commentator. And he's also a person who, yes, uh, in the in the last when he was implicated in the last uh, time uh, round. He himself was obviously the one who obstructed justice. So Republicans obviously were calling him out and mocking him uh, being there since Democrat. the Democrats introduction of him as a witness was just part of a sort of an ongoing um, charade, but none of this is new. This is how um, the congressional oversight has been operating for some time. And the real decision and, and what, the, what the congressional leadership is trying to make is, are they just going to continue to do inve- investigations and ratchet them up a little by little, or are they going to move right into impeachment? Right. And of course, The strategy of the Trump administration, and again, we'll see if the news that you're reporting on there, you ask me, is a big deal or not. It depends what sort of happens out of it. What the administration has been doing is it's been effectively stonewalling Congress, said, okay, we're now done, no more cooperation. And Don McGahn, who would be the key witness, has said... Um, that he's not going to testify, he's not going to make any further statements. You know, Mr. Mueller himself has resigned from the Justice Department. He said he said that the report speaks for itself, which, by the way, it does, right? And so people who haven't read the report and are involved in the public discourse around this at all should absolutely get out of the public discourse, go home and read the report. I think what the report is, is it's a roadmap for impeachment for Congress, and it's up to Congress to do what they want with it. Um, and the reason it's a roadmap for impeachment um, uh, is because the um, remit of um, uh, of uh, Mr. Mueller's role as um, as special counsel uh, it was different than the remit of the independent counsel in the old days, particularly in the, during the star investigation in the Clinton years. Uh, and so he did have to report back in this kind of limited way to the Attorney General, and he could only make recommendations. And he was also bound by this the opinion we've discussed before about from the office of legal counsel that a sitting president can't be indicted. So he had to be very careful and ginger about how he did things. Um, But I think it should be quite clear that, you know, Democratic Congress has a strong case for impeachment, right? And then we can have all kinds of debates about the politics there, but they're dealing with a very obstructionist um, White House who's not willing to cooperate in in any way. So that, that's sort of the bigger picture of what I see. On a day-to-day basis, who's willing to produce documents? Who's willing to respond to subpoena? And who wants to litigate everything? I think ultimately, a lot of this stuff is going to be litigated. It is going to go through the courts. Um, and so, but the politics of it have a life of their own, right? and a meaning yeah. of their own, and obviously, strong historical resonances, um, right? That are that aren't that are that are that are obvious to those who are in the know, and particularly like to those who are in Congress.
1: By the way, just to reflect back on John Dean, just to throw this at you to kind of cap it off. Uh, he said yeah. he said this week that the Mueller report shows, I'm quoting here, evidence of collusion. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something to be taken fairly seriously from Mr. Uh, Dean or no? No,
5: nah, like I think the collusion, as we've said before, you know, we've discussed innumerable times. I mean, the term collusion is not a legal um, term, right? So that the law has certain laws around, um, for example, conspiracy Uh, to undermine, um, you know, the U.S. government or the U.S. state in some way. And those are very serious crimes. And what the investigation said was they couldn't find for those crimes the necessary scienter or intent, because they're very specific intent crimes under U.S. law, including crimes that you have to kind of knowingly enter into a plan which you intend to sort of execute. It's not sufficient that you're just sort of generally, um, you know, open to the possibility of getting some assistance or that you've maybe, through a back channel, um, allowed yourself to hear about it. It really has to be a higher degree of scientific. And that's a, probably a default with the law, because in certain circumstances, it should be possible to make inferences. And usually we say that lack of knowledge around the law or uh, willful blindness is not a defense. But in some of these cases, the requirement of intent is so high that we couldn't make them out. But there's no such thing as collusion, right? Collusion is just a broad term which laypeople and politicians, but not usually lawyers, use to describe to a particular type of behavior which can relate to things which we more precisely describe as conspiracy all the way up to things which we think about as being treason to being just more routine violations of campaign uh, finance laws. And so what the Baller Report effectively said on the subject of what's called in the vernacular, shouldn't say the vernacular in the sort of colloquial, collusion is that there wasn't enough evidence for any of these conspiracy crimes. But what it did show was that there was massive amounts of evidence consistent with what all of the U.S. intelligence agencies had had reported and what diligent independent media outlets had uh, reported that there had been a uh, large-scale planned uh, sort of cyber attack on the uh, U.S. uh, election. Now, uh, again, I don't want to go too far off track on this. But I mean, of course, you can make of that what you want. I mean, some people said, well, the Chinese were, were recorded as having interfered with the election, the prior election. They just didn't didn't release any information in 2012. And doesn't America get involved in cyber espionage with other countries? And doesn't Russia always behave this way? And isn't it typically doing this in its near abroad in Europe? And in, in all of those cases, the answer is yes, but Americans should and, and, and probably aren't taking adequately seriously the fact that this has happened and it it could happen again. Uh, And that's sort of part of what I think uh, Mr. Mueller was trying to impress on people in his press conference um, a few weeks ago. Um, And so, um, but there's no evidence, so to speak, uh, that's a chargeable crime. Uh, that would rise to the level of conspiracy, but again, and so collusion implies this kind of working together, and and yeah, Mueller said there's not enough evidence for me to draw any conclusions around you know what would be conspiracy, for example. But is there collusion? A collusion? Again, it's a political term, so you could argue that that there is sufficient evidence of collusion because we're not looking to meet a specific statutory language. It's an argument that we could make and probably could be the basis for a. Uh, impeachment and a try-on as part of the trial. What there was sort of sufficient evidence to start getting up into the realm of being, um, um, looking to meet a criminal standard was, or being at least close, was uh, the obstruction of justice stuff, right? And contrary to What the Attorney General Bob Barr has said, you can have obstruction of justice and often do have obstruction of justice, even when there's no clear offense, which actually, in the end, was made out or or succeeded upon, but that you attempt to cover up process just for the sake of protecting your reputation or for politics. That's illegal. That's impeachable. Um, And, you know, what Mueller said about that was basically, look, I couldn't recommend an indictment because I'm not able to, In the remit that I have through the special counsel, um, uh, the piece of um, legislation that establishes it and through the Office of Legal Counsel uh, guidelines to recommend um, uh, that he be indicted. But there are several cases which I've outlined, to wit, I think 10. Uh, where it's pretty, uh, it's pretty on the fence. And so the idea is, it's now up to you, Congress, to do your role, division of powers. And so everything, I think, is kind of coming to, there's, we can play around or dance around, but that is the kind of reality of the situation at this stage.
1: Now, the word impeachment, we're, we've heard a lot of it, and I, I think we're going to hear a lot more of it. Uh, the president will will say or do anything to, to, to bat it back. Um, with the Democrat presidential race uh, underway, there's been a lot of uh, use of the word impeachment to uh, perhaps to some degree of political pandering there. But um, do you hang your hat entirely on the Mueller report when you use the word impeachment? Is there other avenues out there or no?
5: You know, I mean, this, you, you know, my, my answer to that is, is that the answer is no, um, that you don't, that actually it was, it, it, you know, only, only the like, kind of, I guess, legal historians who will look back on this and it'll be interesting to see how they kind of tease out and view all of this. Will they Sort of look back on this and say, geez, what a mistake to pursue um, the question of Russian intervention to the exclusion of some other reasons by which the president might might be impeachable, namely, of course, sort of ongoing forms of conflict of interest and self dealing, right, around what is traditionally called the emoluments clause—the idea that a president is not supposed to take gifts or remunerations or payments from foreign, um, you know, entities or um, states. And the fact that, you know, Mr. Trump didn't re- didn't sort of um, put all of his assets into a blind trust or otherwise get rid of them and, you know, has his children involved, just as we saw in the recent trip to the U.K., sort of involved in the affairs of state in his own um, company and the fact that, you know, you have different um, foreign governments using and spending money on Trump properties around the world and entangled businesses with his advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, all of those things. There's just a huge um, uh, wealth of potential grounds for impeachment in the details arising out of all of that. And indeed, um, there are many um, intrepid and serious uh, lawyers, uh, constitutional lawyers, um, particularly at the Brookings Institute and elsewhere, um, uh, an organization called Crew, which is doing kind of public interest litigation around this stuff. And, you know, it could reveal uh, bases for uh, impeachment as well, which may be a little bit more uh, pedestrian than some of the kind of uh, talk around collusion, but which represent a kind of self-dealing, which is impeachable and in violation of the president's sort of oath of office also to uphold the Constitution, uh, from day one, so I think, yeah, I don't think impeachment should be exclusively about the Mueller report. I think that's one aspect or piece of it, and I think that the alarming aspect of Russian interference, as it were, was already clearly the case. Again, the intelligence agencies had said that, the media had reported on that, and so that's the kind of and perhaps we could um, imagine that as a separate piece. But what concerns me, um, Shane, what concerns me, I think, in all of this is that the. Um, I think the de- Senate, the Senate um, uh, de- Democrats are playing. They're they're playing. They're not necessarily playing politics with it, but they, or I should say that they are probably looking at it too much through a political prism. The idea being, well, if we impeach him, he's going to get, um, as we talked about in the past, he's going to get acquitted by the the Republicans in the Senate, and then where will we be? He'll just claim exon exoneration and won't really. Move the ball along at all, right? And I think I think that there's a sufficient evidence already in place. I mean, and and building even more outside of just the frames of the Mueller investigation to move forward on impeachment. And the idea, is, as a government, as a person who's in government, as somebody who's in the public trust, um, your job is to move the ball forward in the best interest of the public and in the state writ large, without sort of a kind of gaming out that outcome, um, because I think. The truth is is that the way the Founding Fathers um, understood the Constitution and the way in which they established the power of impeachment, it was designed also to bring to view and to open to the public better and more scrutiny into the details, right? So I think that the Mueller report in that way and some of these other uh, cases that we have uh, going on around um, other forms of um, of corruption and self dealing are a roadmap for impeachment, and that trial would occur before the entire American people, and all the evidence would be laid out and Even if the democratic senators insisted on that uh, after seeing all that that there was there should be uh, um, an acquittal, uh, the American people may change their mind about things, and at least everybody will have carried out their constitutional responsibilities and insofar as people also view The president as a dangerous person who's not you know um necessarily well uh and has tremendous power at his fingertips that congress should never um and nor should his cabinet forget the powers that they have invested in them through the 25th amendment to remove a president albeit temporarily from office for all kinds of forms of incapacity everybody in all the parts of the government in the courts in congress and even in the executive branch itself have to play their role to protect the republic and to protect citizens from a president who's potentially acting outside the law. And that often gets lost uh, in the hubbub of it and in the game of politics, which surrounds it, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, Last topic, uh, the president recently made a trip over the pond uh, to England, uh, where perhaps the closest cousin to the Trump populism is the Brexit populism. Um, and that brings into the argument also London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who you've described as something of a foil to Mr. Trump. Uh, maybe touch a bit on that relationship between Brexit and Trumpism and, and how, why do you consider Mr. Khan a foil?
5: Well, I mean, it's, he's an, Sadiq Khan is an interesting uh, figure, right? Mayor of London, which is a city I lived in um, for, for several years, for three or four years while I was doing my graduate work, and I went to London School of Economics, and so I was really kind of tied into what was going on in the city, as it were, around the sort of politics and the culture of everything, and London is this fantastically multicultural um, a place, which is really, I think, ground zero in the sort of global metropolis, if you will, right? So that Londoners are very cosmopolitan people. London is a very cosmopolitan and creative place. And Sadiq Khan, who is the mayor of London, is sort of representative of that. And of course, he's from a Muslim uh, background and uh, mr trump has just been sort of vicious uh in the past in terms of his dealings or his remarks or comments about uh, sadiq khan and what sadiq khan hasn't liked about mr trump and it goes all the way back to when mr trump was campaigning for president i believe was his sort of ignorant comments about london being a kind of place where you know there were enclaves of sharia law and that there there were sort of um, you know, there was autonomy for radical uh, Muslim groups and Muslim communities that were that were under uh, undermining, you know, English culture. It's just insane, racist kind of um, conspiracy theory mongering. And we know that Mr. Trump, despite the fact that he's now president, ha- was before he became president and, and still as president, has sort of been engaged in all kinds of the worst sort of. Uh, conspiracy mongering and, um, you know, stories on the on the web. And, of course, those have powered, though, populism on both sides of the Atlantic. And they've that's why Mr. Trump has also been a natural ally of Nigel Farage and of the politics of Brexit, again, which are also tied to kind of white nationalism, which, unfortunately, Mr. Trump has never really distanced himself from and has continued to embrace. And, of course, the dark horse for all of this is Boris uh, Johnson, another former mayor, very different kind of mayor of London, who's now, you know, looking to su- succeed uh, um, Elizabeth May. Or sorry, I always say Elizabeth May, I shouldn't um, uh, I, I say Prime Minister May. Theresa in the, May. Theresa May, yeah <laughs> sorry. Uh, very different people. Um, uh, Theresa May in the UK looking to be succeeded is, is Boris Johnson, who, you know, not only has the same foppish hairstyle as uh, Mr. Trump, but also has the similar kind of, um, you know, very uh, poor history of, you know, racially and uh, morally and um, just generally ignorant and uh, unconscionable kind of public comments and speech and a politics of um, sort of extreme nationalism, right? So that alignment, that that desire by Mr. Trump to sort of bring the special relationship so-called between the UK and the US into his own kind of ideological orbit has been so powerful. And I think we should stop and think about it for a minute because you know, the fact that he is um, you know, going to the UK and while uh, Prime Minister May is still there and talking with Nigel Farage, wanting to have a meeting with Boris Johnson, whether or not that happened or not, and sort of commenting as he did last time when he visited the UK on the very sensitive... Debates around Brexit, it's pretty. It's pretty. um, um, It will be very offensive to and very problematic for many for for the mainstream English establishment and for many British people. But it really does play well on the British far right, and just like his antics play very well on the far right in other jurisdictions in Europe. Uh, where either far-right governments are in power or far-right governments are, you know, in the position of kind of opposition and are very powerful and ascendant. And he is the kind of figure who's, you know, present at their rallies in terms of his words and images and whose leadership regularly confer with him. So it's not that Donald Trump is breaking from the traditional allies in the West. He's actually a splinter group within those allies. He wants to break off into a kind of far-right um alliance with individuals sort of like-minded and view the world through the same uh, prism he is right just like um you know um you know he i'm sure this is, this is how he imagines things right that he you know just like there was a special relationship between you know reagan and thatcher because they were both you know um supply into supply side economics and melton friedman and the free market Uh, And they were both vociferous anti-communists, right, so that he could now build something with somebody who was a a xenophobic, um, you know, white nationalist. uh, It's terrifying. Um, And that's but he's willing to do those kinds of things. And every signal he's given is that, you know, he he knows no limits.
1: Jeff, always a pleasure and always feel like there's never enough time. Thanks, man.
5: All right, Shane, we'll talk again next week. Thank you.
1: And that was Jeffrey Myers, lawyer, also a lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University. We talk to him every Tuesday here on The Woodford Show, and that brings this edition of the show to an end. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. From CHNL
0: in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station, this is Radio NL 610 AM and radionl.com. local news now.